is The Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Some of the world's top journals have been retracting papers from Chinese researchers over serious ethical concerns. Francine, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so a few weeks ago I went to a conference where I heard this ethics researcher, Professor Wendy Rogers, she's from Macquarie University, and she was talking about her research. So in short, her and her team were concerned that there was a large body of unethical research in circulation, and this was particularly research that touched on transplanted livers and kidneys, and it was coming out of the People's Republic of China. So her and her team reviewed almost 450 articles that were suspected of being a bit dodgy, and sure enough, they soon discovered that 99% of the papers in question actually failed to report whether the organs in the study had been given with consent or not. In the last couple of weeks, the journals Plus One and Transplantation have recently retracted 19 articles, and this was after they contacted the study authors and they were unable to provide evidence on the source of the transplanted organs which they cited in their work. Uh, This was quite big news, and it was something that Professor Rogers and her colleagues had recommended should happen. So why did the journal publish these articles in the first place? Did you think a journal called Transplantation would check the source of organs? Yeah, so this is the thing. They're literally the journal uh, for the peak international body for transplantation, which is called the Transplantation Society. And so the editor-in-chief of Transplantation uh, said in an editorial that basically they'd come to the conclusion that it was unacceptable to use organs from executed people, and this was despite what nation it had occurred in or the time frame that the study took place. Uh, it's interesting, though, because the Transplantation Society, of which the journal is summoned from, had already uh, released a guideline where they banned some Chinese conference presentations Uh, which were based on prisoners' organs, and that was back as early as 2006-2007. So Professor Rogers says that it's hard to believe that they didn't know that it was happening. Uh, But in their defence, transplantation claimed that they were blindsided uh, by the Chinese government continuously changing their statements about where the organs were sourced from. But for a brief history, um, just to give some context, the Chinese government actually... Uh, confessed that all organs uh, in China were coming from executed prisoners in 2006. So we know for sure that it's happened in the past. And they claim that they started a volunteer organ donation program as early as 2010. And so for the last four years, apparently all the organs were only supplied by consent um, since 2015. Uh, But a lot of experts have their doubts on this because they're wondering how and why China somehow has so many organs compared to every other country in the world. Apparently they're number one for organ transplants. Um, They do more annually than the USA. And they're even able to have enough that they can sell these organs to foreigners. Uh, So experts basically say this just doesn't add up. So where does that leave us? Well, Professor Rogers says that while these first retractions are a great place to start, there's still, I think, about 400 papers in circulation that she and her team identified as having the same problem. And currently the BMJ have announced that they're investigating three articles um, that were on this list. Thanks for that story, Francine. And now it's time for our hot topic. Uh, This week we've got Robbie Bedbrook, a general practice nurse based in Sydney. My name is Robbie Bedbrook and I'm a primary healthcare nurse from Sydney, Australia. 
The topic that I want to talk about today is increasing the scope of primary healthcare nurses in Australia and how we operate under funding models at the moment that restrict this practice. So obviously we all know in Australia, if we look globally, we actually have really amazing health outcomes, but we are operating in a very different time, the increasing burden in chronic disease and aging population, and we are struggling under those burdens. And I think a really innovative solution and a really untapped resource for that is the primary healthcare nurse workforce that is out there. All of the practice nurses in GP clinics and community nurses and aged care nurses and all the other sectors that you can operate in in primary care. And it's such a wonderful space because you are very usually autonomous and you can upskill really easily. And theoretically, primary healthcare nurses can do so much to alleviate the chronic illness burden on general practitioners, uh, on the health system, the economic burden of that within our scope already, like that exists. But the two main barriers to that, one is that nobody knows that. So there's a real kind of misperception around what practice nurses, general practice nurses, primary care nurses can actually do. And so people don't know like how big that scope can be and all the things that you can do. But then even if you do know that, the funding models that we operate on, under at the moment just do not support that. Like we work in this fee-for-service model in general practice uh, and in the healthcare system that seriously, I mean, it limits everybody's scope, but it especially limits primary healthcare nurses because it's a fee-for-service model that generally pays the medical practitioner and you have to kind of align to that. Um, and so a lot of clinics, especially in general practice, which is often private practice, are very focused on billing and money and the nurse's time becomes somewhat of a... I don't know, like financial commodities. So it's like, well, we don't want the nurse to spend too long with this person if they're deviating from what the task was that they were supposed to do because that's just like money that we're not getting paid for. And obviously healthcare isn't something you go into if you want to make heaps of money. But unfortunately, that is only going to exacerbate the chronic illness burden and create more complexity and put more pressure ultimately on the GP who is already super um, under the pump and under pressure. Um, as are the you know reception staff and the practice managers and the whole kind of healthcare system like we need something innovative and nurses should be that scope because the scope of practice for the primary healthcare nurse is massive and can tap into so many different things and you can see models that exist globally where that works currently if the funding support is there like chronic illness management person-centered care counseling i mean so many different avenues you can tap into that we just can't in australia because we're so like bound by the mbs and that schedule and like does it fit an item number but also that's for GP time and not for nursing time and we've got this many nurses and our practice nurse incentive program only covers this and I know it like really grinds my gears because we need to think way more innovative innovatively than that because it's not about making money it's about making Australia's health outcomes even better than they already are. at the World Conference of Science Journalists in Switzerland in July, um, I heard something really weird that tickled my curiosity and I really haven't been able to stop thinking about it for months. Yeah, so I sit next to you in the office, so I know that you've done quite a deep dive for this story. Uh, what have you found out? So apparently countries are starting to claim sovereignty over their pathogens. So what I heard at the conference was from the WHO chief scientist who just mentioned this offhand at the conference like everybody already knew about it. Yeah, does everyone know that pathogens all have a national identity? 
Yeah, and I just thought this was so bizarre because, I mean, it's a bit logically incoherent. You can't just stamp viruses' passports. They tend to cross borders without anyone noticing Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> quite that's, rapidly. That's kind of the problem that we have with infectious disease. If we could stop them all at the border, you know, life would be a lot easier. Yeah, the reason this is so interesting and important for um, public health responses to disease outbreaks is because it can be quite dangerous if a country decides to block access to a virus strain. So if a country claims that a new deadly virus is their property and refuses to share samples, then other countries, like Australia, can't study that virus and start to work on vaccines and drugs before it reaches our borders. And I imagine this, you know, that would slow down the global response to pandemics um, and it's very dangerous. Yeah, so it, it would could potentially be catastrophic because um, it would mean, for example, that we couldn't get access to Ebola strains or Zika strains or influenza strains. And as you know, these viruses mutate so quickly that you really need to have updated versions. And in the case of influenza, you need to have them every six months um, and they need to be shared quite rapidly between countries. So if you're putting up a whole lot of regulatory barriers, that could be a really big problem. Okay, so can we have an example of where this has happened, where a country has actually said, our bugs, not your bugs? Hands off, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So the example that everyone goes to is Indonesia in 2007. Um, So they had an outbreak of the H5N1 influenza virus. Um, So it was spreading from uh, poultry populations into human populations. They had over 100 cases in Indonesia, at this time and it had an 81% mortality rate so you can imagine everyone's freaking out Um, but what happened was that these samples were being shared by Indonesia for a few years and then they found out that uh, foreign scientists were going to conferences and presenting data based on Indonesian samples and weren't giving the Indonesian government the heads up Um, and then the last straw was when they found out that an Australian pharmaceutical company Um, was developing a vaccine based on Indonesian samples. Yeah, and so what happened? What were the consequences? So what happened in this instance was uh, that the WHO had to enter into negotiations with Indonesia and really figure out what Indonesia wanted um, and come up with a whole new system for sharing influenza strains, and it's called the PIPF framework. And it basically means that any researcher or pharmaceutical company that wants to access these influenza strains has to pay a subscription to the system uh, to gain access and it means the WHO makes like 28 million dollars a year Um, and then when it comes to providing vaccines and drugs in the event of an outbreak um, the WHO will provide those free of charge or at a discounted rate using that pool of money that they've got so it seems like a pretty nifty system Um, but the problem is it only relates to pandemic influenza So there's no system in place for seasonal influenza and there's also no system in place for any other pathogen that might arise. So that leads you to the problem of uh, what happens when you get something like Ebola or Zika um, that's not covered by any kind of international sharing framework. And so at the moment how it works is it's a bilateral arrangement. So what should happen is that if a country wants to gain access to another country's pathogens, uh, they have to negotiate an agreement with that country and that other country can dictate what terms they want um, and what sort of benefits they want to see from sharing those samples. So it's quite, you can imagine if you're trying to do that two ways with every country, it's like a huge amount of work. (laughs) Even just for Australia to do that with hundreds of countries would take forever. 
And then if we look at what happened in Saudi Arabia with the MERS virus, um, I don't really know much about that. You can probably explain it better, Felicity. So in 2012, there was this diplomatic incident that happened between Saudi Arabia and the Netherlands. Um, So what happened is a scientist working in a Saudi hospital sent a biological sample of the MERS coronavirus to a Dutch lab to confirm his discovery of a new disease. And then what happened is this scientist got into massive amounts of trouble with the Saudi government when the Dutch lab tried to patent um, any vaccines or diagnostics that came out of these biological samples. Um, So this scientist was under so much pressure that he eventually just dropped everything and went back to Egypt um, because it was just getting too tense. Uh, And it's still kind of unresolved. And there's researchers, so legal academics, who've said that it's just so legally fraught that scientists are just not bothering to continue the research in this area. And Felicity, more recently, we've also seen similar cases happening in West Africa with Ebola. Is that correct? Yeah. So what happened in West Africa is that um, countries like Sierra Leone that got uh, the Ebola infection taking off in about 2014, 2016, they had a kind of invasion of every country in the world wanted to put scientists on the ground and try and to get a hold of the situation because it's a very deadly virus. And so you've got Americans going in, the UK going in, France, Germany, everyone. Um, And they're starting to ship these blood samples containing Ebola out of the country. And of course, patients who have Ebola, there's like a 50% chance that they will die. So their blood samples are often being taken without their consent out of the country into labs on the other side of the world. Um, Thousands of samples left the country during that outbreak. Um, And the scientists who are working in that country, who are um, citizens of that country, want the sample back because they would like to be able to to do their own research on their own citizens' blood samples, which kind of makes sense. Um, But it's been very hard for them to get any information about where the samples went, um, and they're not getting any access anytime soon. So it's been like... It's, it's been a real blow to those scientists. And then what happened is Ebola spread to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And what the government there has decided is that all of their samples of Ebola are not leaving the country. And it has been completely impossible for any foreign scientists to get their hands on the most recent strain of Ebola, um, including the CDC, including Canadian scientists, um, one of whom I, whom I spoke to, And so what the CDC has decided to do is they've reverse engineered the most recent strain of Ebola using an old strain and the genetic sequence information for the new strain, um, which is a very technically difficult thing to do. And they've had to come up with this workaround because of the diplomatic issue. And the CDC has gone on record saying it's a bit of a logistical problem and that's why they can't get samples but we know that all the samples are sitting in the capital city of the Democratic Republic of Congo and they could be easily shipped out. They're not in combat zones. So (laughs) that kind of excuse doesn't really stack up. And researchers around the world are saying that this is a massive problem because a lot of research is not being done. Um, While I'm sure the scientists on the ground in in the Congo are doing the best they can, um, it obviously would be a lot better if everyone was working on the problem rather than just one group of scientists. There's obviously two sides here. Uh, One seems obvious, it's the question of how are we meant to have this quality control um, and collaboration between international teams to, you know, cross-disciplinary and solve some of the most deadly um, infectious diseases facing the world at the moment. Uh, But then on the other hand, it does uncomfortably and strangely look like colonialism. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you can see why countries would feel like that. And I went, I spent an entire evening on WikiLeaks because I thought this would be super fun, um, going through and reading diplomatic cables um, and trying to find an example of country a country discussing this issue and how they feel about it, um, but not what they would publicly disclose. So WikiLeaks, as you know, has these secret diplomatic cables. And I found one example. It was an internal cable between uh, government officials in Brazil, and they were discussing the theft of rubber plant species by the British um, and how that was an outrage. And in the same breath, in the same paragraph, they were discussing the H1N1 virus. And they were talking about how there's a suspicion in Brazil that a lot of their biological resources are being exploited um, by ex-colonial powers. So I thought that was quite interesting. It shows that this is definitely something that's being discussed. So if I'm a scientist in Australia and I'm after some samples that technically are owned by another country um, far away, uh, what kind of protocols or international um, treaties should I be aware of? So there's two. There's the Convention on Biological Diversity and then there's a Nagoya Protocol. Um, So the first one was uh, signed in the 1990s and the second one was signed in 2014. Um, And together, basically, what they do is say that any biological resource that is found in a country belongs to that country and if you want to access it you have to negotiate with that government um, and that government is allowed to set whatever terms they like Um, and in principle any benefits that arise from the use of that resource should return to the country of origin. So these two conventions don't specifically talk about pathogens, Um, they do talk about microbials but really what they're trying to govern is um, things like herbal medicines, plants, animal species. And the essential purpose of these two treaties was to encourage conservation um, by recognising that biological resources like the Amazon have commercial value. That was kind of the whole point. And so since 2007, this convention has been used and applied to the pathogens area, and that's because the health minister in Indonesia made this link Um, And so she kind of established this new um, pillar of international law and it's kind of stuck and it's been really hard to move it since then and it's just become more and more intense. So I spoke to a Canadian scientist. He's the guy who came up with one of the first Ebola vaccines. Um, And he he said he was quite good at cutting deals with countries and that's why he had access to the pathogens. The deal that he cut was that any IP, any intellectual property that comes as a result of his research using their samples belongs to that country. It seems like a really fair outcome uh, because the scientist still gets to do what they love in the equation and the country isn't being robbed of kind of something that they do own. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that's a pretty decent way of doing it. Um, And he said that that was the right thing to do and that it was wrong for anyone to make any money out of selling vaccines, which is quite it's quite an extreme version. And also a lot of universities would not allow their scientists to get away with that because they want their scientists to be creating um, IP that belongs to the university. And similarly with pharmaceutical companies, their researchers um, wouldn't be allowed to just give away IP. But that is an example of the kind of negotiations that these scientists now have to go through to get access. They really have to sign everything away. Uh, So Felicity, in your feature, which is in the latest edition of the Medical Republic magazine, you mentioned three different examples of where this has occurred. But... 
you know, three examples in a big wide world of science, how do we know that this is actually happening and happening more often than that? Yeah, it's a good question. And that's what really was on my mind while I was doing this feature. So I emailed a lot of scientists and some of them had never heard of these conventions and they had no idea that this was going on. People who you would think should know that this was an issue um, and couldn't come up with any examples as well. So that kind of got me thinking, oh gosh, is this really a big problem or is this just happened in a few isolated cases? But then uh, I came across some research from a different field um, which showed that this is really um, becoming quite a big problem. So this is the field of biocontrol. Um, so that's basically where you have a weed problem or you've got uh, an insect population that's out of control and it's ruining all your crops. And so what you do is you bring a different species uh, that competes with that species into your country or you know, a predator so that you can balance out the ecology and get rid of the weed or insect invasion problem. Oh, yes, of course. So this is what happened in Australia and why we don't have so many invasive species. Um, So there's a guy in the UK who works at an international group that uh, kind of arranges these kinds of species movements across countries, and he says that there's been an 80% drop since the Nagoya Protocol came into effect. Um, So there's been an 80% drop in the number of species crossing borders, which is huge. That's enormous. And he spoke to me on the phone for about an hour explaining how difficult it is to negotiate with some of these countries. And the reasons being that they often don't have a very clear process. They don't have clear contact people. And there are some countries where the civil service changes over every couple of years. And so you can't then contact the person you were contacting before. So they had a three-year period where they couldn't get any species out of India, for instance. Um, And in countries like Turkey, they couldn't get anything out of Turkey at all. Um, And Turkey had these really strict um, rules to the point where they started arresting entomologists. So they're people who study insects because those entomologists were trying to collect samples. So where does that leave us now for the state of disease research? Really, I think what um, health researchers need to be aware of is that sharing pathogens between countries is no longer something that you can do in a private, informal setting. It's actually becoming quite a politically sensitive and tense area and that, co- and that governments really want to start getting involved. And that if you do something that's unethical and goes against these international conventions, it could become a really big international diplomatic incident. It's really important to make sure the countries feel like their contributions are being respected. And really just be aware of the fact that we don't live in a world where it's okay to invade another country and strip them of their resources anymore. Um, (laughs) Colonialism is dead. And I think it's a pretty good wake-up call for some of the superpowers that think they might be able to control the entire world. (laughs) Yeah, we uh, definitely can't nuke a virus as much as we'd like to try. Um, We've got to work together on this one. Okay, so that's almost it for this season of the Medical Republic podcast, but we'll leave you with this quirky bit of medical history. So you may know that honey has been used in medicine for millennia, and it's actually a reasonably good antiseptic for wounds and burns. At least that's according to a Cochrane review anyway. But there is an ancient medical practice involving honey that might make your hands stand on end. Oh, okay. What is it? It's called mellification, and it's recorded by a Chinese apothecary called Lai Shizen in his 16th century encyclopedia called Ben Kao Gangwu. So he described mellification as a practice where older people, uh, they volunteered to drink nothing but honey for days until their sweating and urinating kind of 
the sweet concoction that would be honey. So eventually they die and their bodies are submerged in honey. Uh, so it becomes like this weird honey corpse. And basically the, that corpse was believed to be a treatment for broken bones and wounds. Wow, that makes our quack medicine look quite mild in comparison. <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode and the end of this season as well. But we're going to have a few bonus episodes in the coming weeks and then we'll be back launching into a third season of The Medical Republic in September. Catch you then. 